Uh, I'm getting older, guys. It's happening. Uh, I, uh, I, I coach basketball, and our season just started. We had a couple tryouts and some things that are happening. And yesterday, we had tryouts, and uh, one of the older boys on the team said, Coach, let's play one-on-one. And for some reason, I always take that bait. And I'm, I, I'm always like, oh, okay, let's do it. And it doesn't matter that he's 17 and I'm pushing 50. Uh, I, I was ready. And, uh, and so he said, I know you're old coach, so we're going to play to three. And the uh, first possession, he just drove right past me. Like he, he was so, and he turned around and he said, coach, you're way too slow. And I said, I want you to remember this moment right now. Stop. I made him stop. I said, I want you to remember this moment when, you, when you're right almost 50 years old. I want you to remember talking to your coach, and I want you to remember how I beat you. And I scored the next three points and beat him. Right? Now, I might have used old man strength and fouled a little bit, right? But we're allowed to do that. The older you get, the, oh, those of you who play basketball, right? The older you get, the more you're allowed to foul, right? It's permitted. It's allowed. Uh, I, I am getting older. I, I, uh, our family took this trip to Tennessee about a year ago. And as we took this trip, we were kind of outdoors. There was a bunch of stuff going on. We were hiking. We were in the woods. We're, and, and towards the end of the night, it was kind of cooling down. And we had this place in the mountains. And there was this little fire pit outside. And I was out there with my nephews and with my uh, kids. And I was making a fire. I was kind of building a fire in the bonfire thing there. And my daughter had just been like the photographer for the day. And so she had taken just a bunch of pictures all throughout the day, and she was kind of on like the balcony of our condo or house that we were renting there, taking pictures above the bonfire down below. And the next day, we kind of looked around, we had a great time that night, and we kind of looked around, and we were just flipping through the pictures of the last day and of our trip together, and we were laughing at different things, and oh, this is a good one, and you know how you share pictures, so I'm sending pictures to my sister, and she's sending pictures to me, and mom and dad are involved, and all the kids now have their phones, even if they're three, uh, and they're all like sharing pictures also, and so we're having this great moment, and I'm looking through these pictures of, uh, in my daughter's uh, album, and, and there's these pictures of this old guy building a fire. And I look, I'm like, who is, I, I almost asked the question out loud. Like, I almost said the word, who's the guy with the graying hair who is making the fire? And I realized, that's me. Like, the picture was me. I was flipping through it, and I was like, who's that guy? He's kind of chubby, and he's, he's got a lot of gray hair, like when you get a picture of me from on top, it's, it's, not, it's a lot of gray, right? It's, there's not just a little gray. There's a lot of gray working there. Uh, and and I, I, in that moment, like it, I didn't have this moment where I wished I was younger. I didn't have this moment where I was like really unhappy with myself. I didn't have this moment where I was like, I, I don't, I, I, I had this moment where I was amazed, not at my ability to like, get older, I was amazed at my inability to see myself as who I really am. I was amazed that I looked at a picture of myself and I didn't even know it was me. And getting older is no fun, right? You, you can't play basketball the way that you used to. You, the weight comes on fast. Uh, uh, my, when, I, when I turned 40, I don't know what happened when I turned 40, but when I turned 40, all of a sudden, ear hair and nose hair just decided to come out and join the world, right? Like it just... 
rapid growth. Like just, oh, I don't know if anybody else has experienced that or if that's just limited to me, but there was some rap, like my, it was like my ear hair and nose hair was like, what's going on out there? I want to get out there. Like, I don't want to stay in here. I want to get out there. So I had to get one of those like flashlight trimmers that gets up in there and, right, it got to, you can explore in there and make sure you get a mirror. All of those things. As, as we get older, all of these strange things happen. And what happens in the middle of getting older is we have these kind of identity crises along the way. And we start to realize who we are. And we start to realize what we're called to do. And we've spent the last few weeks talking about awakening. We've talked about discovering your kingdom dream. We've talked about the occupation that God has for you. And today, I want to talk about how we find that occupation in the middle of our life. Uh, Carl Jung is a famous Swiss, Swiss psychologist uh, who studied with Freud and learned a lot about Freud, and he's kind of the founder of analytic psychology. Uh, he's the one who began to take the ideas of adult development. So childhood development was kind of a part of psychology where you started to study how children develop, right? When, you're, when you turn two, you do this. When you turn three, you do this. You, this part of your body starts to develop when you turn 10, and this part of your brain starts to develop when you turn 16, and um, I don't think much develops at 16, but, but what, these things start to develop, and it's just kind of this study of, of child development. Um, Young went a step further and started talking about the development of adults, and he started studying the first half of life and the second half of life. And he started making assessments about this idea of there is the first half of your life where this is what's happening in your life. And then there's a the second half of your life where other things are beginning to happen. And he was one of the first ones to make a clear distinction between first half of life thinking and second half of life thinking. Um, the second half of life, according to Young, is, is it, and we can get to that in just a minute, guys. I'll go to that chart in just a minute. But, but the first half of life is more about undoing than doing, uh, or more about doing than undoing. Uh, the second half of life is, is kind of this undoing of all the things that we did on the first half of our life. And so the first half of our life is about striving to make our mark. It's about um, trying to focus on the output of what we can accomplish. It's about trying to do and, and so the first half of life is all about discovering what we can do. It's this kind of, I'm, I'm able to do this. I'm good at this. I can get paid to do this. I, I, people value me when I do this. And so we place all of our emphasis on doing these things in the first half of life. And then the second half of life is more focused on our input. It's not focused on our output of, of what are we putting out. It's focused on our input of who are we becoming. And does the work that I'm doing actually do good in the world? And does the work that I'm doing actually do good in me and in my family? And so we often see this distinction uh, between this powerful physical and emotional and, and, and this large journey that we're on through this spiritual transformation of the first half of life and the second half of life. Dallas Willard famously said this. He said, our goal every single day is to take one step closer to the kingdom. And so whether we're in the first half of our life or the second half of our life, every step that we take in our journey is a journey towards transformation. It's a journey towards becoming who God has called me to be. And that journey goes on for our entire life. Every day I get to, to become more like Jesus. I get to become more comfortable in my own skin. I get to discover who I am and who God is and how we work together. And the rest of our lives we get to sort these things out together with God, but the first half of our life oftentimes is preparing us to be the vessel that God wants to prepare us for for the second half of our life. 
And so the first half of our life is this preparation time. So let's get that chart up here. I want to just go through this really quick, and, and then we'll get into the meat of some of this. The first half of life, there's a development of our ego. Uh, our ego plays a huge part in the things that we're doing. We want to know that we're significant. We want to make our mark on the world. Um, there's a focus on ambition and achievement. There's a desire to make our mark and leave a legacy. We're concentrating on the outputs of what we can accomplish, and we focus on the conscious. What we can see is what we focus on. The second half of life, according to Jung, is an unlearning of self so that we can focus on others. It's an unlearning of who we are, an unlearning of what we've learned in the first half of our life, an unlearning of this desire to ruthlessly and recklessly make our mark and create a legacy, and it's a learning to focus on others and pay attention to others. It's a focus on who we truly are and not just what we do. It's a desire to love others well that begins to grow in the second half of life. It's an input, not an output, of who we're becoming. And there's a focus on the subconscious. We're focusing more on the subconscious of who we are. Uh, so for me, in my journey, uh, I, I was hired as a 26-year-old at one of the largest churches in the country. And I got this job as a young man. I, they, they thought I could teach a little bit, and, and then they thought that I could lead because I could teach, and I really couldn't. I, I was a kid who loved ministry and loved the Lord but I didn't have a lot of experience. I didn't have a lot of character development in my life. Uh, I, I was really trying to make my mark in the world. And I was hired um, by a large church at the age of 27. Um, I was given a staff of 80 people that reported to me. Uh, I was given a $4 million a year budget to manage. Uh, it's a little different than Grace Marietta. Uh, and, and in the middle of all of that, I was not ready for any of that. And so what began to happen is I had arrived at the age of 27, I had my dream job. I was at the top of my field. I had had like everything according to the ego and the first half of life metrics, achievement, accomplishment, all of those things. I had all of those things. And I was there for 10 years and I was miserable. Because here's what I started to realize. I started to notice that my ministry was better at producing consumers than producing leaders. I started to notice that there was really no discipleship making going on at all, but that we were really good at doing something on the stage every week. I noticed that as the ministry grew, the pressure on me grew and it increased, and that the more people that came, the more pressure I felt to wow them every Sunday. I noticed that my workload and stress levels were steadily rising. And as the pressure to perform increased, I started to believe more and more the lies about my own leadership capabilities my own capacity, and my own character. Ironically, in this process, I became more and more prideful when I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so I doubled down on my inability to know things and understand things. I became difficult to work with. I became difficult to be around, not just at work, but at home with my wife and my kids. Sarah Hardman is a saint that we are still married after that season. I was working 70, 80 hours a week every week. Uh, I was not a present father for my children who were young at that time, and I noticed that I wanted the stage much more than I wanted real transformation in myself and in others. Uh, and I realized that even though we were changing the way we talked about things in our church, we weren't changing the way we walked things out in our everyday life on Monday. We had all the language right, 
We had none of the actions right. And I sat down with a mentor in the middle of all of this, this uh, older man who was a pastor at one time in his life who met with me weekly and we just had coffee and we'd pray together and he just put up with me, I think, for that whole season of just my whining and complaining and my confusion and everything that was going on. And I remember he looked at me one day and he said, maybe you're trying to take people to places that you've never been yourself. And I hated him for saying that. Has anybody ever said anything to you that is so true that you know that it's true, but it's so hard to receive that you want to resist it? That was it. It was 100% true. There was no lies in it, right? There were no lies seen here. But I, but I had such a hard time receiving it and taking it in. I just did not know how to receive that. And, and, and I realized in the middle of this, I had this kind of breaking inside of me because I realized I'm climbing the wrong mountain here. And I've built this whole ministry on my ego and on my personality, and I'm trying to do this in my own strength, and I'm trying to make my mark, and I'm trying to accomplish all these things, and I'm trying to do these without the Holy Spirit, and I'm trying to do these without discipleship, and I'm trying to do things that I just am not ready to do, and I, I, I had to stop, and I had to step back, and I had to evaluate what am I doing? There's a lot of books that are written on the second half of life. Uh, David Brooks is one of my favorite. He writes a book called The Second Mountain, which is one of my favorite books. Uh, and I love the terminology of there's this first mountain that we climb, and then there's a second mountain that we climb. And our first mountain is always preparing us for the second mountain. And, and the first half of our life is always preparing us for the second half of our life. Richard Rohr wrote a, wrote a really good book called Falling Upward, where he talks about sometimes when you stumble into the second half of your life, it feels like falling it feels difficult, it feels challenging. There's this desert in the middle of the space. Bob Buford wrote a brilliant book called Halftime where he talked about moving from success to significance in your life. Uh, but I think in our culture, right, in America, we live in a first half of life culture. We live in a first mountain culture. I think we could cross out the first half of life and cross out the second half of life and just insert first mountain and second mountain because I'm realizing all of this has something to do with age, but it's not all built on age, right? It's not that every time all of us turn 40, we hit a midlife crisis and we find out we've got to have a second mountain. Sometimes people start climbing their second mountain in their 20s. Sometimes people start climbing their second mountain when they're really young because they're more self-aware than I was, because they have a realization of what God is doing and what God is up to early on in their life, and they start pursuing their personal calling and their kingdom dream at a younger age. And so they don't have to waste as much time climbing the wrong mountain. They don't have to waste as much time uh, crossing over and, and, and finding all of these things. There, there's a cliched statement that youth is wasted on the young, which is absolutely true, right? It's 100% true. And the older you get, the more you realize that it's true. But the truth is, is nothing is wasted, though. Nothing in our youth is wasted. Nothing in our first mountain is wasted. All the experiences, all the dilemmas, all the challenges, all the hardships, all the difficulties, all the valleys that we walk through and all the deserts that we cross in the first mountain begin to prepare us for the second mountain. God is so good because he doesn't waste anything. And there's almost this catch-22 in our spiritual journey where we cannot get to the second mountain until we go through the first mountain. 
We actually cannot discover our kingdom dream. We cannot discover our real personal calling in our life. We cannot be awakened to all that God has for us until we explore and we decide and we discern and we find out and we try and we beta and we experiment and we spend half of our life, which feels like wasted time, but God doesn't waste it at all. Because everything that happens in the first mountain prepares us for the second one. Everything in my ministry at that big church has prepared me for my ministry now. There are so many beautiful and good and wonderful things that I learned from that church and from those people that I apply every single day to the ministry that I have now. And so nothing is wasted. But I wanted to intentionally have a little bit of a discussion around these things because here's what, I, here's what I know. I know there's some of you that are sitting here right now and you're like, Ben, we're 15 minutes into this and we haven't mentioned the Bible yet. I don't need another self-help thing. I don't need another psychology thing. Thanks for the Carl Jung uh, pointers. Uh, where does this actually get spiritual? Here's what I believe. There are times when psychology and sociology and anthropology and all of these studies of humanity start to touch on something that is a deeply spiritual principle that is deeply true, not just in the natural world, but in the spiritual world. But they don't always have language for how to describe it in the spiritual world. This is what I believe about this. I believe this is touching on a really beautiful kingdom concept that really, really matters to us. It's something that is so important. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 13 through 14, it says, when anything is exposed by the light, which means when we become aware of anything in our life, when we become aware that we're climbing the wrong mountain, when we become aware that there's another calling on our life, when we become aware that there's something bigger for me, when we become aware that we have a kingdom occupation, even when we become aware of the own sin and depravity in our own life, when we become aware of those things, it's exposed by the light. And anything that's brought out into the light and named, we can deal with. That's why over and over in the Old Testament, there's this power of names. Names are so important. All the names in the Old Testament mean something. At creation, God gave Adam and Eve the job of having dominion and getting, what came with dominion was being able to name the animals. Because once we name something, we can deal with it. It's exposed by the light. It becomes visible for anything that becomes visible as light. Therefore, it said this, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and the love of Christ will shine upon you. Which also means there's a way that we can live where we live fast asleep. Right? Where we, we just numb ourselves. We just go through the motions. We just circle that first mountain over and over and over again. And we keep showing up even though it's miserable. Even though we know it's not what we're called to do. Even though it doesn't fulfill us. Even though it doesn't excite us. We just keep spinning around the mountain uh, of, of that first mountain. Rather than waking up, naming the reality of, wait a minute. I think I'm trying to take people to places I've never been myself. And so what really needs to change, this is, what, this is crazy, guys. What really needs to change is not the context, right? When I was 35 and I was going through all of this, I thought, well, I just need a smaller church. I just need a different church because these people are annoying, right? I just need different leaders around me. We just need a different structure. We need a different hierarchy. We'll have a different elder structure. We'll have a different, all of those things. You know what needed to change? It wasn't the church. It was me. This is the journey from the first mountain to the second mountain. It's what we call in the Bible transformation. It's discipleship. 
It's becoming the person that God has called you to be by changing yourself so that you can be the leader that he needs you to be. 2 Corinthians 3.18 calls that moving from glory to glory. It says, as we, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord, who is of the Spirit. This is what's happening for all of us. We are moving from one degree of glory to another, which means every single day we're taking one step closer to the kingdom. Every single day we're moving from glory to glory, and every single day we're becoming closer to who the Father has actually called us to be. We're becoming the people that can hold the dream that God has for us. I believe, and we've been saying this for weeks now, that God has a kingdom dream for every single one of you. Every single person at home or in this room, anyone within the sound of my voice, you have a kingdom calling that is given to you by God, that he prepared for you in advance, that he has equipped you for, that he has gifted you for, and that he is sending you out to be an ambassador to. You all have that calling, and the way that we step into that calling is we become the container that can hold the vision that God has for us. Young and Floyd and Freud and all of these people try and explain this by first half of life, second half of life. Scripture explains it by moving from glory to glory. It explains it by being transformed into the likeness of Christ. It's, it's walking on the path. We've been using the words, we become awake, we become aligned, and we become alive. That's the best way we know how to describe it. And so with the first mountain, the ego can't be in control because if the ego is control, in, in control, eventually it's going to take over. In the first mountain, we become victims to so many options. In the first mountain, we live in FOMO. We have this fear of missing out or this fear that I'm not going to make my mark or this fear that I'm not going to achieve or accomplish. We, there's this striving that comes with it where I have to do something now because if I don't accomplish this, I'm worthless. There's an anxious mark-making and inconsistent faithfulness. We believe that there's a silver bullet and a quick fix and a, and a microwaved answer to everything, that two plus two is always four, and that there's an equation for happiness, an equation for joy. If I do this, God does this, the world does this, everything works out. And the older we get, the more we realize we don't know, right? The older I get, the more confused I am. The older I get, the less certainty I hold on to. The older I get, the more gray areas I see in life, not just my hair, right? Over and over and over again. Scarcity marks everything. There's not enough, so I have to earn it. I have to achieve it. I have to accomplish it. Our institutions are actually designed to help us achieve rather than us using our institutions to bless others and to serve others. We treat people like commodities that are to be used and set aside in order for me to climb my mountain and usury becomes a common occurrence for us along the way because the most important thing is for me to get to the top of that mountain. External formulas, grit, superficial emotions, and relationships are all used to get me where I want to be, and there's this perseverance that says, I got to make my mark, and I'm going to work hard enough, and I'm going to earn it, and I'm going to accomplish it on my own. And the key question in our first half of life, in our first mountain, is what makes me significant? Is it what I do, or is it who I am? 
Is it what I show up to do from nine to five every day? Is it what I accomplish? Is it the things that I put my hands to? Or is it actually something bigger? Richard Rohr uses the metaphor of the container and the content. He says what happens is the first mountain builds the container for our life. It helps us to see what we can do, what we can accomplish, what we're capable of, what we're skilled at, what, 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 what gifts we actually bring into the world. And so we build this container, but oftentimes we don't have no idea what to fill the container with because the container is filled with ego, it's filled with sin, it's filled with me, it's filled with selfish ambition and vain conceit, it's filled with pride, it's filled with arrogance, it's filled with all the wrong things. And so we actually have to empty the container so that God can fill it. We have to pour ourselves out of all the brokenness and all the sinfulness and all the ego and all of the things that are ego. I, I, I know this is cheesy, but the best way I've, I've heard to describe ego is ego is edging God out. Right? It's this edging of God out. So the container is so full of me that I've edged God out of the container because it's, my ego has become so big that nothing else can fill that container. And so there has to be this self-emptying. And so in the first mountain, we discover what we can do. And on the second mountain, we discover what we were made to do. Moses' first mountain was living in Egypt, where he was a prince in Pharaoh's house. But his second mountain was realizing that his people were enslaved and his beginning to fight for their freedom. Paul's first mountain was a rabbi and a persecutor of Christians. He was at the top of his field. And his second mountain was becoming a missionary to the Gentiles, who weren't even Jews. Joseph's first mountain was working for his father and gaining the coat of many colors and being the one who was in charge of his brothers. And his second mountain was interpreting dreams and working for Pharaoh. Peter's first mountain was being an impetuous disciple who left being a fisherman. And his second mountain was being the preacher at Pentecost who brought fire from heaven. And every one of those moments, we could go through all of Scripture, guys. We could take any person in Scripture and we could define, this is their first mountain, this is their second mountain. But here's the thing about the first mountain and second mountain. In between it, there's a desert. In between it, there is hardship. To get from one to the other, it takes self-emptying, it takes difficulty, it takes eyes to see and awakening, and it's this dangerous and difficult space that we walk into. And so in our second mountain, we discover that we spend our whole life climbing the ladder of success only to realize that that ladder was faced against the wrong side. In the second half of life, we realize that the first half of life was, was lacking, that it's incomplete, that it's not enough, that the things that I pursued on the first mountain did not satisfy me and make me whole. We learn to hear a deeper voice than our ego. We learn to hear the whisper of the Father calling us into work that gives us joy, calling us into a life that makes us alive, calling us to be fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and neighbors and friends who actually live alive in the Spirit and walk where the Spirit leads every single day. It feels like a loss sometimes. It feels like falling and it feels difficult. The first mountain is not equipped to deal with certain problems and answer certain questions. It just can't do it for us. Our ego cannot answer the questions that the Spirit of God can. And so we get confused, and we learn to see ourselves clearly. We learn to deal with the inner portion of our life, and we learn to walk into the desert. Last week, we talked about orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. 
That's what happens in the desert. Is in the desert, there is this disorienting season of I don't know who I am if I don't do this. I don't know who I am if my ego doesn't win. I don't know who I am if I'm not pursuing these things. And so we've got to reorient ourselves around a new principle of life, around a new mountain, and around a new vision. Here, this is really cool. So I started studying all of this this week, and I, get, I nerd out on the Bible, and I nerd out on all kinds of things. So I started doing like Hebrew, Greek words. I'm just chasing down everything. Here's what I realized. Deserts are mentioned 41 times in Scripture. There's 41 different deserts mentioned in the Bible. That seems like a lot. The wilderness, though, is mentioned 300 times. It's the same statement, right? Whenever the desert and the wilderness are used, they're kind of interchangeable, particularly in the Old Testament. And so there's this overemphasis of desert and wilderness in, in Scripture. The Hebrew word for desert is the word midbar. Midbar. And you know what it means? This is so cool. It means the space between. Right? The desert is the space between our first mountain and our second mountain. It's the space between one glory to the next glory. It's the space between where we are now and where God is calling us to be. The desert is that space in between. Now, mountains are mentioned 400 times in Scripture. 400 times. The word mountain is, is the word har in Hebrew. Not a har. You've got to say it with a, like a hard H. Har. Uh, and, then, and, and here's the interesting thing about mountains. This is crazy. The word har, the Hebrew word, is actually connected, and it's, um, it's connected. There's a numerical value for it, which is really weird. So the word mountain is connected to the number 205, which is weird. And so I was like, why? Like, why, why does that matter? Like, is it just a language thing? Is it just a... I'm not a linguist, I don't, I'm not an expert in Hebrew or Greek or any of those kinds of things, but I am an expert in typing things in Google, and so I started searching, and I started trying to find out, I started to find articles, I started to find information about it, um, and here's what I found out. There's this saying that the rabbis used to say over and over again, and here's the saying that they used to say, they used to say, one more lap around the mountain. One more lap around the mountain. Let's take one more lap around the mountain. And what they're saying is, there's a moment in our life where we just kind of circle the mountain that we're actually called to climb. And the number of times they believe we circle that mountain is 205. The 205 times we circle the second mountain that we're called to climb. And so the rabbis would actually say this statement, one more time around the mountain and then it's time for you to climb. One more time around the mountain of trying to figure out who you are. One more time around the mountain of not being courageous and stepping into your calling. One more time around the mountain of trying to wait and see and circling this place that you're actually called to step into. And then as you step into it, what begins to happen is something beautiful begins to happen. Do you ever feel like you're in exile and you're waking up every single morning thinking, okay, I'm just taking another lap around the mountain. I'm showing up to work. I'm clocking in and I'm clocking out, but it just feels like I'm circling something that could be much more beautiful. That's the concept that's taught in Scripture over and over again. And as I've been praying for this morning, as I've been praying for this message, my prayer has been this. Maybe, God, there's somebody who's going to hear me preach that's going to say, enough of circling the mountain, let's climb. 
enough of circling around my calling, enough of fiddling around with my ego, enough of like just waiting here without stepping in to the thing that I'm actually called to because there is a desert to cross. And, and, and the reality for us in the American church is we are not known for our perseverance. We are not known for walking into the desert. We're not known for experiencing pain or hurt or difficulty or paying a price for something that's good. But anything in this world that is good is going to cost us something. And getting on that second mountain is going to cost us something as well. And when we talk about second mountains, I'm not necessarily talking about your occupation, right? I'm not telling everybody out there, go quit your job tomorrow, please. Right? I'm talking about discovering who you are and discovering your kingdom calling along the way. In World War II, uh, at the end of World War II, uh, Japanese soldiers began coming home. And, and something was happening as they were coming home where they had this really difficult time integrating back into society. Uh, it, it happens for all soldiers at wartime. There's this uh, trauma that they've experienced. There's this challenge of entering into everyday life and figuring out what that life looks like. And, and, and so the, the, the government and people in Japan began thinking about how do we help these men integrate back into normal everyday life where they can be fathers and brothers and sons and, and, and just enter into life again and be an accountant or a doctor or a dentist or, or whatever it is. And they knew that their culture, like Japanese culture, is rich in rituals. It's, it's strong with a sense of sim symbolism and aesthetics and ceremony really matters to them. And so what they started doing was they started holding these ceremonies and every time the soldiers would come home, they'd gather them in a large room like this. They would bring them up one by one at the front of it, and they used the wisdom of, of this ceremony and the symbolism to identify that the formative years of these men's life had been spent as a soldier. And as a soldier, that provided them with a sense of a certain identity. They had become a certain type of person because they were a soldier. And the only identity that they knew was the soldier identity. And so what they called this, it's this beautiful statement, what they called this is discharging the royal soldier. And what they would do is they would have each soldier come up front uh, one by one, and they said this phrase. They said, the war is now over. The community needs you to let go of what has served you well up till now. And we need you to now return to be a parent, a partner, a friend, a mentor, or something beyond the soldier. And then they said this phrase. You are now discharged as a loyal soldier. And there was something in that ceremony that allowed them to dismiss this first mountain and step into the second mountain. And I'm wondering today, if there's some of us that need to discharge the royal soldier, the loyal soldier. I'm wondering if there's some of us that need to say, you know what, I've spent half my life pursuing this thing. And I thought it would give me joy, and I thought it would give me satisfaction, and I thought it would make me whole, and now I'm realizing that it hasn't. And so I need to walk through the desert of becoming who God has called me to do, to be. I need to be discipled. I need to walk through all of these challenges to find out who I can be. I, I, I quit the big church that I was a part of. Uh, I was told it was the worst career decision anybody had seen a young pastor make. That, was, that exact phrase was said to me. Uh, and as I was in this desert of trying to figure out what God wanted me to do with my life, I didn't know, honestly. I could have been a basketball coach. I could have, uh, I don't know, 
there's lots of things I could have done, I guess, I suppose. I, I'm not good at much, but I can talk about the Bible, so the, the, the pastor thing works well for me. Uh, but in the middle of all of that, I had two kind of prophetic words that were given to me that have been kind of the most meaningful prophetic words I've had in my entire life. Um, one, my wife and I owned an old Victorian house in Old Louisville. It's this largest station of Victorian homes in the city of Louisville. And they're all kind of torn up and falling apart, but they're beautiful, gorgeous homes. And we bought one of these homes. It was a stupid decision. It was the worst decision we've ever made financially. It was a money pit. Uh, nobody wanted to buy it. And all I did was feel stressed that there was work that needed to be done. And I'm also not very handy. Uh, so I had to pay people to do that work. But one of these things, I was working on the electric. There was a light that went out. And I, I know just enough to like replace the light, to like put a ceiling fan up, that kind of stuff without killing myself. Uh, and so I, I was up on this ladder, and the, the ceilings were huge. Like, we're 12-foot ceilings, so I'm way up on, on the top. And I opened this up, and all of the screws that were in there, of course, they were all stripped. Uh, and they were all from, like, 1918. Right? So all the pieces, all the parts, none of the pieces fit. So I had to, like, uh, it was just this excruciating day. And guys, you guys know this feeling of, like, I've been doing this, and my arms are, like, jello and I, I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't like to not know what I'm doing, and so I'm getting angrier and angrier and angrier, and then I get one piece off, and I realize there's another piece behind that piece that is, like, even harder to figure out, and I call the hardware store, and they're like, oh, we don't have that. That's like, that's, they, they stopped making that in the 20s, right? And, and so I'm trying to figure all these things out, and I'm just growing in all of this frustration. And all of this, guys, became a metaphor for my actual life in that moment. Because I had left the church. I was striving desperately to make all the pieces fit and try and figure out everything. And I got to a point where I was so angry, and I climbed down, and I sat down on the ground next to the ladder, like Indian style, like a child. And I felt the Lord say, I'll make the pieces fit. And he wasn't talking about the ceiling fan. <laughs> he was talking about my life. You don't have to strive. You don't have to push. You don't have to hold your hand in the air. You can rest in me and you can trust that I'm good and that I'll be with you. And you can follow me into the desert because you trust me. And then I was at this pastor's gathering where I was the preacher which I loved during that time because I didn't have a job. So when somebody hired me to come preach, it was good. And so they hired me to come preach, and, and I'm at this thing, and I'm in Boston, and I'm preaching to this group of church leaders in Boston, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm just like sharing away about God's goodness and all this stuff, and I'm trying to wrestle through this stuff in my own heart, and this guy comes up to me afterwards, and he's like, hey, man, I just need to pray for you. Is it all right if I pray for you? And I, I never say no to that. And he said, I, you know, as you were preaching, I just had this vision that I have to share with you. He said, you're standing in the middle of the desert, and I had just been processing all of this stuff in my own life because all of this stuff didn't come from nowhere. It came out of my own experience. You're standing in the middle of the desert and he said, there's this big giant canvas in front of you and there's all these paintbrushes and there's all this paint and there's all this ink and there's all this stuff and you're just standing there starving and standing there thirsty and just standing there and he said, I think the Lord is saying to you, let's paint our future together. Let's just, you pick up the paintbrush and I'll guide it. 
There's an empty canvas, and every single one of us gets to paint our future. And so I don't know what this means for everybody. I feel like we've done more of a seminar than a sermon this morning. But here's what I'm hoping. Here's what I prayed for this morning. I, I prayed that you would be able to find yourself somewhere on here. Are you circling the first mountain? Are you frustrated and feeling like, man, this is not what I wanted my life to be? There's this gap between the promise that I see that God has for me and the actual life that I'm living. Are you finding yourself in the desert where you're feeling this disorientation and everything in you wants to run back to what's easy and wants to run back to that first mountain and wants to give your life back to the thing that was simple? Or have you become awake and are you able to actually name the kingdom dream that God has for you? Have you gotten to a place where you're actually able to say, I think this is my kingdom calling. I think this is my kingdom dream. And are you working to become that and it's just hard and it's just difficult? I've got this pastor that I meet with. He's a retired pastor. He's in his 90s. And I always love to ask him this question. Does it ever get easier? Like when you turn 70 and you're a pastor, are you not as irritated by the emails? And is it easier when somebody leaves your church and says mean things about you? Or is it easier when like all the pains of ministry and all these hurts, when you want something more for somebody than they actually want for themselves and you grieve because you can see the life that they could have but they just refuse to step into it and you're trying to persuade them or disciple them to step into what God has for them and they refuse it over and over again. Does any of that stuff ever become easier? And I love his answer because I ask the same question over and over again in a million different ways and every time I ask it, he says, yes and no. You never figure it out. You never learn, like we never arrive at a place where we've gotten to the top of the mountain. We just keep going from glory to glory to the next calling, to the next assignment, to the next mountain, to the next thing that God's called us. So no, we never ever figure it out. But yes, we actually do become, we do get to a place where we realize who we are and who Christ is and we can come to terms with all of that. And so my prayer for every single one of us is that we would be the leaders who stand in between the first mountain and the second mountain and say, we're not gonna blame the culture. We're not gonna blame the context. We're not gonna blame mom and dad. We're not gonna blame what happened to me as a child. We're not gonna blame all of these other things. We're actually going to take responsibility for ourselves and say, I'm the one that needs to be transformed. The leader is always the person in the room who is the most transformed person in the room, who is growing who is not anxious about what's happening but is working towards a solution. And so could we be those kinds of people? And just imagine, like this is so beautiful guys, we get to do this together forever. Like I, I'm, I'm not going anywhere, I'm gonna be here for a long time. And I'm gonna be your pastor for a long time. And we're gonna climb a bunch of mountains together. And hopefully I can be there for you and you can be there for me and we can be there for each other. And when we're climbing the mountain of our 30s, let's talk through it and let's figure it out. And we're climbing in the mountain of the 40s, let's figure it out, let's walk through it together. And when we're climbing the mountain of our 70s, let's figure it out together. And I may be an old man at that time and our church may be just a bunch of old people. We'll pray for young people at that time, right? But let's, we get to journey through this together. And we get to depend on the Holy Spirit and trust him. So we're gonna move into a time of communion. It's no different than what we do every week. 
or we take the juice and we take the bread and we just remember God's faithfulness and his goodness. We remember that Jesus was willing to walk through the hardest desert so that he could uh, accomplish his kingdom calling. He was able to carry the cross. He was able to take on the cross so that we could dream the kingdom dreams that God has for us. But in the middle of all of that, I, I, I just wanna ask you, just to ask the Lord, Lord, what's the one thing you want me to do with this message? What's the one step that you're inviting me to take? What's the one thing you're calling me to step into in the middle of this? So Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would now do the work that I can't do. And I pray that you would speak to each and every heart that is curious and is listening. I pray for every heart that is hungry to hear from you that you would speak loudly now. And I pray that you would reveal your plans and your vision and your purposes. I pray that you would tell us the works that you've prepared for us in advance. I pray that you would give us courage to walk into the desert. I pray that you would give us eyes and ears to see, to name what's actually happening. And I pray that you would give us the power of the Holy Spirit to become your ambassadors who can actually change the world. So Lord, work now as we worship, as we take communion. Speak loudly. It's in your name we pray. Amen.